Welcome to Filmstrip, movie reviews presented by Continuous Play Podcast. These podcasts are spoiler-filled as we discuss the plots, characters, and themes of the films in review. All content used or discussed in these podcast episodes is the property of the respective owners and used under the Fair Use Act, Section 504C2, Title 17. Welcome to Filmstrip. I'm Jay. I'm Brian. And I'm Ron. And this is our review of Scream 2, starring Nev Campbell, Courtney Cox, David Arquette, Jamie Kennedy, Liev Schreiber, Jerry O'Connell, Timothy Oliphant, Laurie Metcalf, Elise Neal, Sarah Michelle Gellar, Omar Epps, and Jada Pinkett. Written by Kevin Williamson and directed by Wes Craven. Released in 1997, less than a year after the first one, on a budget of $24 million, grossed $172.4 million at the box office. So for a $7 million bump in budget, they got only $600,000 less back on the return of this. This was a massive, massive hit in 97. And I remember being turned on to the Scream franchise again, as we talked about last time after seeing the first one and I, you know, the sequel was coming out. Oh, holy cow. I was there opening weekend. I remember. And before we get into to memories of Scream 2, though, specifically, we got to talk a little bit about sequels and horror franchises. I mean, guys, we've reviewed a lot of them here. Just between the three of us, we've done a lot of them. And then I've done other ones with Nick, too, and with Anna. And I wanted to ask you guys, what are some of your favorite sequels or part twos in series that we've talked about or maybe ones we haven't talked about here? You're going to uh, lose me here. <laughs> uh, one, of my, one of my favorites is still the, uh, the Friday the 13th with the Psychic. And oh. I still, for for some pointless reason, I really enjoy the part of uh, Jason Takes Manhattan, where Jason's actually in Manhattan, although it takes way too long to get there. <laughs> That's true. So, so, Brian, no love for, like, Leprechaun 2 or anything? Halloween 2? <laughs> no love for no. Leprechaun <laughs> Back to the Hood? That, well, okay, that's there. You go back to the hood too. If you want to call that a sequel, yeah, back to the hood was would good. make my list. Yeah, back to the hood was good. The, the two hood leprechaun movies. I'm just gonna go ahead and say are the best ones in the series, people. So I mean, that's, you don't even need the rest. So, <laughs> well, I mean, I, I'm trying to think of some of the the sequels that are actually considered sequels uh, for like Nightmare on Elm Street Two was horrible. Disagree. So no. Um, what'd you say? Disagree. You thought Nightmare on Elm Street 2 was good? It, I didn't say it was good. It's watchable and enjoyable on a cult level. Completely no. <laughs> um, totally veers off the whole subject of the damn film. This is true. Ish. So. Uh, we talked about this before. Yeah. You can you can pick that up in the archives. Yeah. Yuck. Um, other than that, uh, whew, sequels. The Crow was one of my favorite movies. That sequel sucked. Um... Uh, Wayne's World 2 sucked. Wait, Wayne's World sucked. Uh, so. No, Wayne's World was great. Shut up. Disagree. <laughs> Ter- terrible. Blues Brothers um, 2000. Jurassic Park Lost World sucked. Oh, God. <laughs> um, now you're really getting in the barrel. <laughs> I'm just reaching out for things I've seen sequels of. That's yeah. all I... I I can't really. WrestleMania 2 wasn't as good as the first. Yeah. Well, agreed. <laughs> so, Clash of the Champions 2 lacked a little bit of something to be desired, but it had plenty of dusty booking in it. So, Well, that's that's why it lacked. Um, 
Well, we can get into that on another podcast. Yes. <laughs> now, I think the thing about sequels and horror franchises, and it is one of the, I, I mean, I remember it being like one of the trailers for this was the whole discussion Randy and Dewey have about sequels. And I just remember that really resonating with me. I'm like, yeah, the body count's bigger, the kills are way more elaborate, and it's you know it's always some kind of twist, you know, or whatever else some of the other rules are. And like, if you survive from one sequel to the next, it's rare to get out of the second one. Like we saw that in the Nightmare series, Brian. That you used to, people that made it from one to the next one were usually off pretty quick. Friday the Thirteenth. I don't. I mean, Tommy Jarvis is the only one I know besides Jason that made it from another one to another one, and he kind of lived. So um, at the at the end of six, we never saw him again. So I don't. Yeah, you know, I don't know. It's it's hard to say. Uh, you know, I'm a fan of Halloween too. We talked about that on another show way back when, and I remember. I remember going into this thinking, man, it's the same. It's everybody back. You got everybody that survived the last movie back. You got Craven back in the director's chair. You got Williamson writing it again. There's no way this can be bad, right? Like in my head, I'm like, but there's so many places you could go because I didn't know anything. I knew jack all about what this was going to be about. If it was going to be the same, you know, bunch of people or if we were going to replace them and do like a different story, I had no idea. So I went in pretty cold on it and I, you know, I'll tell you guys, I I watched this movie and I remember thinking, "Okay, yeah, that was entertaining." And then I watched it again sometime later on VHS and every time I've tried to watch it, I've always come up a little bit lacking on this one. So it, it has a strange memory in, in in my world and in my history here, because having liked the first one as much as I did, this one I feel like just misses so many things. So just initial impressions, like what did y'all think? I completely forgot about this movie, like everything while I was watching. I'm like, I, I must not. I must skip this one when I watch Scream series <laughs> because I completely forgot what even this whole plot was about. I remembered who the killer was, but that was about it. Yeah, this one, um, I have no, I know that I've seen it, but I have no tangible memory of having watched it. It was like um, eating Chinese food. It was gone after like two hours and I, it was like I hadn't even eaten anything. You just you stole my metaphor. It's I was going to shit it out. <laughs> Write the time down on that, by the way. So anyway, uh, <laughs> no, I, you just stole my metaphor. I was going to use in my summation, so I'm going to blow it now. This is like the Little Caesars pizza. You know, you've had pizza, but you don't really know what it consisted of when you're done with it. That's. I feel like this has all of the markings of everything I would want of a horror sequel yet i can't remember any of it either and and i've seen it way more times than brian but i i'm the, i had the same thing like i went into this and i was like oh i forgot that oh that's when that happens i thought that was the other movie and like there was stuff i thought you know there were things that happened in this one i thought oh wait i thought sarah michelle was in the third one you know like i totally just brain locked on this movie so it it was a new experience for me around this time too so this will be fun to to get into and discuss as we uh we go through it well, Jay, since you want to do that, why don't you go ahead and give us a plot summary on this one? Okay, look, there's the usual plot summary where we kind of talk through everything we see in this film. And then there's the summary of what in the heck is actually going on. And so I'm going to do this one from the not necessarily what we see happen, but in the end, what we know is the story of Scream 2. Okay, so just hold on. 
Billy Loomis's mother, going by the alias Debbie Salt, recruits a young psychopath named Mickey Altieri to aid in her revenge plot to get back at Sidney Prescott, who thwarted her murder son's rampage two years ago. She waits until Sydney is at Windsor College, along with Randy, in Ohio, far away from the horrors of Woodsboro in California. However, Sydney can't escape the attention after Gail Weathers' book on the murders is set to premiere as a film adaptation that weekend. Mrs. Loomis directs Mickey to kill two students at the film premiere, which throws the campus into panic and attracts media attention, including Gail Weathers. Dewey, partially inhibited by his injuries, shows up to provide support to the local authorities and his friends. And when Mickey hang, while Mickey hangs out at a party, Mrs. Loomis stalks and kills a student at another sorority house across the street, and the suspect list gets closer to Sydney, including her boyfriend Derek, who's injured while she is chased by the killer. Gail, Randy, and Dewey get a call from the killer while sitting in the green space, and as they walk around looking to see who it might be, Randy is dragged into a news van and stabbed to death by Mrs. Loomis after he insults her son. Gail and Dewey review crowd footage shot by her cameraman who bailed after all the killing went down, and when Mrs. Loomis strikes again after separating the pair, stabs Dewey multiple times in the back. When two cops prepare to escort Sydney and her roommate Hallie out of town, Mickey strikes killing both cops and eventually Hallie while Sydney runs back to campus. She sees the theater lit up and inside discovers Derek tied to a prop of her as a fraternity prank and before she can untie him, Mickey steps in revealing himself while casting enough doubt on Derek so that Sydney backs away allowing Mickey to shoot him. Mickey reveals the whole plot to Sydney, how he's going to blame the movies, have a rocking trial, etc. And then Mrs. Loomis shows up holding Gail at gunpoint, revealing her motive, revenge. Mrs. Loomis shoots Mickey because she can pin all this on him and get away with it with her alibi. And in the melee, Mickey gets off around and drops Gail into the orchestra pit. Just as Mrs. Loomis goes in for the kill, Sydney turns the tables and a boatload of theater special effects on her as Mrs. Loomis finally regains the upper hand, holding Sydney by the throat with a knife. That's when Cotton Weary, who's been skulking around looking for his 15 minutes of retribution and fame, shows up with a gun and after a brief standoff, shoots Mrs. Loomis. Turns out Gail survived the gunshot and she and Sydney unload a pair of Glocks into Mickey who make a last gap gasp effort to kill them all in the end dewey is shown alive somehow headed for an ambulance where gail passes on a story while she's also somehow still alive to go be with him uh sydney sends a the hounding press to cotton weary whom she calls the hero and she walks into a crowded campus finally able to get away from it all as really awful late 90s music begins to play and the credits roll and that is the i guess alternate plot summary of what actually goes down in scream 2 it's crazy. <laughs> well, we talked messed up. We talked about last time that the last movie, if it owed any, you know, thing, it owed itself to anything uh, besides previous horror movies and a lot of things. Halloween was the big influence, and I get that Friday the Thirteenth is the influence on this one. Do you, you guys feel that, Ron? Particularly you, as you and I reviewed that series. Oh, definitely. Reverse, hello, hello. Yeah, it's it's the. Um instead of going about uh, Friday the 13th part two, this is Friday the 13th part one. Cause you've got the mother getting revenge on a bunch of uh, teenagers for killing her son. Um, right down to the mother displaying superhuman strength for a 40 year old, hundred pound lady. Exactly. So we'll, we'll get there. Uh, you, you nailed it though, Brian, you knew that the reverse of the Friday the 13th, but it's the, it's the oldest, uh, Motive in the book, right? Revenge, right? Why else do anything? So, um, you know, as a plot contrivance, it, it 
it makes sense. I mean, this is part of what Williamson, when he when he was selling off the Scream script, which at the time was Scary Movie, he turned in a five-page treatment for it, and if you do a sequel to it, here's what it would be. And it was basically the shell of this. It was Billy's mother coming back to wreak more havoc. And that was the the, the, the thing. And so they kept that and, and went with it. And, you know, this is the first movie I remember someone telling me that the internet had caused it to change itself when it was all said and done, because the ending of this got leaked out and it was going to be Mrs. Loomis was always involved, but it was going to be Hallie and Derek as the killers and cotton weary was going to be a killer. It was, it was going to be four because it was double the fun. And they ended up changing that when that hit the internet. And uh, that's when they moved it to Timothy Oliphant. And there's actually part of the movie that was shot with the other people in mind as the killers. And if you watch it knowing that, I think you can kind of see them leaning toward that uh, in different scenes. But they did change it at the end, and we got what we got. Um, we got a longer movie this time, too. You go longer on the sequel, that's not something I see a lot of. Most of the time, you want to get in and get out quicker, right? Like, you don't want to belabor the point. I'm trying to think how Friday the 13th, or... Uh nightmare two was compared to nightmare one because i remember nightmare one being quick and nightmare two uh, seeming like it took forever i don't know the runtime on those if they're any different but yeah i remember you talking about that it felt longer when a movie's bad it can feel long too but this movie is actually two hours for a horror movie that's a long unless you're rob zombie that's a long time you gotta admit especially for 1997 nobody was doing that i don't know if a lot of like movies period that were two hours in 1997 yeah i mean that seems to be something that has come along in the marvel age the marvelization of uh hollywood shall we say where all the superhero movies now have to be three hours long or something like that well, thank you dances with wolves <laughs> is that who we're gonna blame that on we're gonna blame that on costner that was the <laughs> that was the first three hour flipping movie that I remember. Oh goodness, no, man! There were plenty more before that. Oh. So that's the first. Yeah, one but you they remember. always. But <laughs> yeah. the but the ones before that always had an intermission. So you could get up and get some more popcorn to make it through the four hours. Exactly. The Thirties. Well, unpopular unpopular opinion here. Dances with Wolves could have been an hour and a half long, and it would have been fine. <laughs> so I don't think that's very unpopular. <laughs> But, I think even Kevin Costner agrees with you on that one. Which is funny because... <laughs> that's why he went and did Waterworld. <laughs> it lasts for five hours. and No, that's The Postman. So, um, Which, if you can get to the first two hours, that was actually a good movie. My, Kevin Costner's like the modern Michael Cimino, except he never had to pay for his cinema sins. So, anyway. <laughs> or maybe he has. But we've gotten off track. You know, Scream 2, to me, though, starts out trying to redo literally stuff from the first movie. We get the premiere at the theater and they're going to see the adaptation of what happened last time. So we're going to see like the <laughs> scenes again, but we get this like total Kevin Williamson, excuse me, total Kevin Williamson verbal essay on like black cinema in Hollywood and horror movies, right? Which now is a joke, right? The black guy gets killed first. Nobody was saying that in the nineties. Like that was, that was something different. And you put these two aspiring black actors on the screen. People, I knew who both of these people were at the time and you off them in the first five minutes. Because that's what we expect in this movie. But after they've had this whole diatribe about how ridiculous all this white shit is, you know, which is 
funny, <laughs> and then they get killed by it. Like it's it's like that. But see, the difference is. The Drew Barrymore kill from last time, we didn't expect it, and it jolted you into the movie. This time, I go in knowing something like that's probably going to happen, and I don't, like, there's no fear induced in any of this, except for when he puts his ear on the bathroom wall. That, like, that that probably didn't end well health-wise for him. But, I mean, really. Can, uh, t- tell me, why do you think he put his ear on the wall? What was what was he hearing? I, you can, If you, like, was, go ahead. He was hearing weird, like, mumbling sound like i don't know it somebody looked talking like he thought about like somebody like a child whispering about mommy it's it's timothy oh, olifant's okay. voice it's timothy olifant's voice going should i do it mommy should i do it mommy and like he's doing this whole you know mommy killer do i kill him now and my whole thing was like how does he know the dude is next to the wall is he like peering over? And I mean, how do you know, brother? I mean, he's looking down at the feet and going, "Well, he's got to watching the feet. He's got to be yeah. close enough." I mean, I guess so. Yeah, I I wondered that for it gets it right on too. Yeah, I mean, maybe he's got a little mirror up there he can see. I, well, gosh, public bathrooms are already scary <laughs> enough, Brian. Thanks. So, <laughs> but I mean, really, like I I was like, is he just going to wait for him to walk out of the stall and slash him? I mean, there's a lot of ways he could have killed him, but to kill him the way he does, it's friggin' brutal. <laughs> I mean, he stabs him in the ear. With that hunting knife, which is amazing. Yeah, it looked pretty nasty. And I thought uh, I thought he was going to escape a little bit uh, and get out and start running. But he then they it kind of teased like he was going to run out of the bathroom and get up and go. And then he just kind of plopped over dead. But Yeah, he stabbed in the brain. I don't think it lasts long after that. So, uh, <laughs> you never know. I'm sure he would have just dropped, but. Yeah, but it is a gory scene. But it's set up into the the thing we've seen a hundred times in horror movies. The girl is sitting by the killer, and she doesn't know she's by the killer, right? And right. and all all of this stuff. And then boy, Jada gets it bad. Like she gets cut up. And right there in public, because everybody is dressed as Ghostface, and everybody is stabbing people with their fake glowing knives so everyone <laughs> thinks it's part of the show have either of you ever been to a film premiere where there was like costuming going on and like wild antics at the same time i typically avoid that <laughs> um but i will admit i did go see uh the force awakens on opening night and luckily i went in a small town where there were a bunch of people yeah. but n- only like a handful of them even dressed up um when I saw uh, – when me and my wife went to see The Hobbit, we got tickets to an early – like an early a pre preview screening, basically, like a critic preview. And there were people who showed up – there were two spectacularly drunk girls who <laughs> showed up dressed like slutty elves, one of whom threw nice. up during the – like one of whom passed out before the movie started, then woke up during a nice quiet part where – you know, uh, Bilbo was talking to throw up, <laughs> and then her and her drunk friend had to be escorted out by um, security, which was theater a lot of fun. security. <laughs> yeah, because neither one of them was really going to be able to walk out. <laughs> one of them for sure. Um, wow. Yeah, so that was pretty awesome. Um, and I've been to like midnight movies, like. You know, Rocky Horror Picture Show, and I've seen The Room, and people dress up for right. that and throw things and yell at the screen. But 
that yeah. that was the uh, the Hobbit was the only time like in a legitimate movie uh, situation where that kind of stuff happened. I was gonna say like when you go to the room. Hey, hey, hold on, hold on, hold on, yeah. Ron, you just blew my mind. They play the room in theaters. <laughs> oh yeah, you and pay, people play the- pay to see it. Yes, people pay to see it. They pay to yell insults at the screen. They pay to sing the uh, Full House theme song and all the tracking (laughs) shots across the Golden Gate Bridge. Uh, They pay for uh, to dress in tuxedos and throw footballs around. They pay to throw spoons at the screen every time a spoon shows up in the (laughs) artwork of the on Tommy Wiseau's weird set. Yeah. My mind is blown. <laughs> uh, wow. I recommend it. Uh, wow. So I've never had that experience um, or the like heavy costume experience. I've gone to like big crowds on opening weekend and like somewhat raucous crowd, you know, watching a movie or whatever, but never one where I, I've, you know, was like distracted by the amount of like fake stabbing, stabbing going on while Heather Graham is being menaced on the screen, you know, like it, I've never seen anything like that. So this, when I saw this in theaters, I just was imagining to myself, and Ron, you know where I'm talking about here. Like that would never happen in Florence, you know, like where I'm from. Like that would that would never go down. Like nobody would. First, you'd probably get beat by somebody in the crowd, and two, like nobody would do this. And this is what's amazing to me about this movie is these aren't just random people killed in Hollywood. This middle of like in the small town, middle Ohio. Gets a premiere of Stab. Well, it can't be that small. They're at a college. Well, no, I've college towns can be really small, and the one I live in is. If it weren't for the college, would be incredibly small. I've worked in ones before, and like when you read about this on the, all the scream stuff, it's supposed to be that Randy and and Sydney both went to like the smallest, like middle of nowhere in America school they could find to get away from all of the Woodsboro murders crap because that's one thing i think this movie's smart for is that we are not a year later it's two years later when they're out of high school now because none of these actors look like they're in high school i mean at all um tip of the old events at least like 30 you know at this point you uh, jada looks like she's you know definitely the supervisor at work not the co-worker you know she's she's not a student none of these people are are student age so they they're wise to move it to college plus you give them more freedom that way and you don't have to deal with adults and it's a smart move y'all want to get far away so i'm i'm thinking about like this small middle america town and they get a premiere of stab first off like this wait 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 this is supposed to be two years after the events of scream right correct how quickly did did gail get that book written and how quickly did it get made into stab well see this is stab's premiere so my thought was she got the book written and optioned it off before she wrote it now that is not unheard of like like john grisham like hadn't even written uh the client and sold it you know, he just had the treatment, like the idea, like two sentences, and they bought the movie rights for it. So I'm not actually totally surprised by that, because if something like this scandalous happened and it was a big news deal, I could see somebody going to the person that was writing the book and going, hey, we want the movie deal. And of course, Gail is nothing but a sellout, if anything, in life. So, oh, big yeah, time so now. she's going to totally <laughs> go for it, right? She sold the things off quick. And they even go as far to say it's just kind of based on it. And when you, when you come to find out is that 
that the book isn't exactly accurate. The film is even less accurate. And moreover, there are things in the film and in the book that Gail wasn't around to see. So the only way she knows half of what's there is because Sydney told her. And my question is, Sydney and her dad must have some really crappy lawyers because otherwise they'd be set up on this, right? Well, they got okay, yeah. There was a lot of stuff that changed from what happened in Scream One, uh, one but the lot of a lot of the dialogue they actually got spot on, Ex- which is weird. exactly because again, Gail wasn't there for two thirds of it. So how is she, how is she going to get that? She has someone or was else. She? Well, see, that's the thing. Is <laughs> uh, that's what I wondered. I was like, are they trying to tell me Gail's the killer? And from everything I read, you guys tell me if it's different. At no point was Gail going to be the killer in this film. So I. I, it's one of those like you just have to accept it for what it is, but since it's such a big part of the plot, I nitpick it because it doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I mean that was what what drove me nuts is I'm watching this. I'm like, well, how how do they know the words that were spoken to Drew Barrymore's character before she was died, before Casey died? Right? Yeah, they're getting some of that dialogue spot on. Yeah, which which is <laughs> funny because let let's face it, like the only thing I can think of there is that. Billy and Stu used an MO like, you know, do you like scary movies? What's your name? And stuff like that. Because the only people that know that conversation, all three of them are dead. One got, exactly. one got killed by TV. One got stabbed and shot and the other one got gutted. So that nobody knows that conversation. And this is where I, I start to realize that just like I did way back when and every time I watch this movie that I'm already having a problem. Because if I'm asking these questions, then I'm not engaging with this movie. I'm I'm completely tearing it apart. And I'm going to blame the film itself for this. Because when you decide you want to be this meta-ironic thing, you now ask me to sort of step outside of my usual viewing self to enjoy this. And so I'm looking for the hidden references, the inside joke, right? And when you peel back the onion on this, you realize that it's kind of a paper mache outside. There's not a lot in the middle. It's the same thing again. Yeah. I mean, I agree with that. It's, I, I I was asking myself the same type of questions as I was watching this movie. Like what, how does how does Gail know this and how does Gail know that and and whatnot and so it was kind of I, I, it was taking me away from it as well so I, I'm with you on that. I mean, uh, mostly I was asking myself how old specific people are on screen <laughs> that that took up most of my that most of my brain power while watching the movie. I was like, okay, so Tim the Elephant's supposed to be in college, but him and Leah Schreiber are basically the same age. So is right. Leah Schreiber supposed to be in college too? <laughs> no, see, because it I, looks like he's 40. See, I always knew Cotton was like an older, you know, ne'er-do-well around town or whatever, or layabout or whatever. But I'm like, is Timothy Oliphant like, is uh, this is, it's not that kind of college. I'm like, he's not a peer of these people. He would be the older brother buying you beer, you know? <laughs> so, which, well, I like, I like the, uh, the backstory that we came up for, for uh, Timothy Oliphant uh, before we started recording, Jay. Yeah, go with it. Yes, our theory is that uh, Timothy Oliphant's character, uh, whose name I forget already. Mickey. Mickey mm-hmm. is there at uh, college on the GI Bill, and he's crazy because 
he's got PTSD from uh, fighting in Gulf War One. Wow. <laughs> I can go with it, though, if not for one line where he specifically says, had to have a backer, tuition's expensive, you know, where he's doing his best Stephen Jeffries from Fright Night impression on that stage. And uh, that's when he brings out uh, Mrs. Loomis, you know, Laurie Metcalf, who I can only assume they drug off the set of Roseanne to do this. Like, I have no idea why in the world they got, why they thought her for this. I guess because she doesn't look like someone that could throw throw Buffy off of a building, but that's what she does. Did you get the feeling that it was kind of going to be obvious that it was her from the get go with her, like trying to one up Gail all the time in the news stuff? I think she is the obvious one. And I don't think the movie even holds that back. I think the, the twist is who's the other one, who are the accomplices? Because it totally makes sense, right? I mean, she's always trying to one up Gail and she's always freaking there. And she's some local news. We don't know who she is. So we have no, like, rep. There's nobody else that verifies her credentials. So we have no one to go, oh, gosh, that's Debbie Salt. She did the, you know, rainwater story two years ago or whatever. Right. So, right. Yeah. So nobody knows who she is. The fact that she's always around, I'm like, well, clearly that's it, somehow or another she's involved in this. I never did think the Mrs. Loomis thing until they reveal that. I thought, oh, okay. I've, I wasn't expecting that, but okay. But. It's it's who the other killer is that we're supposed to like be obsessed with, you know, and that you can play a fun little whodunit on it. And again, knowing what you know, what you know, I said about the film earlier, you can see how they're like casting doubt on several people. Oh, and I, they should. That's how, what a good movie would be. Um, so that's not a surprise. But yeah, I I, uh, I like how they tried to make it out to be the boyfriend again. Derek um, Jer- Jerry, O'Connell, Jerry O'Connell, maybe like the vanilla wafer of white nineties actors. Wouldn't you say guys? I mean, <laughs> just about as plain as you can get. He was good. in Jerry Maguire playing a douchebag draft prospect. <laughs> no, I disagree. I like Jerry O'Connell. Okay. Tell me, tell me why I, besides I, being the fat guy in, in stand by me. Well, I wasn't I, he a I team was wolf a, too. No, that's no, Jason. Wolf two was oh, Jason. They look the same. Kind of, uh, I, I was a big fan of Sliders, so I, I'm, I'm already on Jerry o, Team Jerry O'Connell. Um, I think uh, when he showed up on on screen, I excitedly yelled, "Hey, it's Jerry O'Connell!" Speaking of which, um, wasn't Joshua Jackson in Sliders too? I don't think so. Okay, he's in but, some but other. I type but I couldn't thing. pick Joshua Jackson out of the lineup if he held a gun to my head. Well, he's he's one of the he's one of the kids in the film <laughs> class with comedian Craig Shoemaker, by the way, which is hilarious. If you've ever seen Shoemaker's, um, uh, he's the professor here doing doing a stand up about it. But um, he's one of the kids there, and he's on the set because at the same time this is happening, Williamson is getting Dawson's Creek, you know, together, and that is going to premiere like in January of '98. So he just you know grabbed him for a day and said, "Hey, come over here and just read some lines," because as it were. This great scene in the classroom where we have everybody debating, you know, good sequel versus bad sequel and all this kind of stuff. Um, that's where we're supposed to know that it's Mickey because he's the one like touting that sequels can be equal because he's basically making a sequel, though they're really not. And I want to talk about one of the other things they just dropped from this movie here, too. Okay. So, and I'm going to fast forward ahead or just skip around here a little bit. So we know that the two people get killed at the theater, right? Phil and Maureen are their names. We didn't know that otherwise until people told us. So 
There's that. And then everybody's partying over at Lambda, Camda, Famda, whatever. Anyway, so after Cece gets killed, because this is what happens. Everybody's partying across the street. She is sober sister. So she's hanging out, flipping channels, watching Kung Fu, uh, talking to Summer Blair as it were on the phone. And she thinks her drunk boyfriend dials in because now we have call waiting. So, okay. So now we, we've already done the, the caller ID thing because the first gag we graduated. is. Yeah. The first gag is. Uh, Sydney gets a prank call and she's like, well, Mr. or whatever, you know, it's against this certain law. And so he hangs up on her. So she's like, whatever. And then now we've got, uh, call her, uh, call waiting. So she flips over. And as it turns out, it's not Ted. No, it's, and this, we know this is Mrs. Loomis because Mickey is across the street talking about how much Ewoks blow and he's drinking with, you know, uh, <laughs> Portia del Rossi or whatever. And so. There's, there's part that, of a trilogy. Yeah. And so, um, yeah, cause him and Randy are having this whole discussion. So about sequels. And so anyway, I, I do like the quippy dialogue. It is funny. I'm not going to lie and say I don't laugh, but like, there's nothing of consequence happening here. And this is what gets me. Cause I'd always thought, well, they tried to start this movie just like the last one. Really? They don't. They, they do this whole commentary on the culture that the last one created basically. And now this is when they're going to start the movie because this kill is identical to the Drew Barrymore kill almost except for the flaming popcorn. Like it's a long conversation <laughs> with a blonde girl in a place. She gets chased around. She beats the crap out of it for a minute, but then ultimately she gets stabbed and she gets thrown off of a building, which thrown off of a building by a hundred pound woman. Now, Sarah Michelle Geller is no like, you know, beefy person herself or anything. But if you're trying to tell me Laurie Metcalf could kick her ass, no way. <laughs> like I know that was the get of having her on this was you're going to kill Buffy because that'll blow everybody's mind. But that is redonkulous. The way that that whole thing goes down. It is and only to be accented by that friggin' Everclear song. So, I mean, at the end of this, this movie is so 90s it hurts. I think that's what you texted me at some point in the middle of it, Rod. Yeah, I said something about how how the great the soundtrack was. <laughs> and by great, you meant not, right? So, <laughs> why? Come on, oh, Everclear, oh, no. the Foo I've... Fighters... Dave Matthews band. Less than How Jack. I, I, can I, it be? I kind of enjoyed this this soundtrack. I'm not gonna lie. I I'm but not gonna lie that Jake I, on your yeah. I mean, if you put less than Jake in your movie soundtrack, I'm gonna give it a thumbs up. It's it's fine. <laughs> they need the money. Well, I'm not gonna lie that I don't own the cassette of it still, but it it was for like two songs. <laughs> One of which Brian railed on last time about how much he hated it. So <laughs> screw Nick Cave and the bad seeds. It's only in like one scene, really. So they, you know, I think it's in two. They, they, they do ding it in when they're kind of zooming around campus when Gail shows up, right? So it's but, it's in two in the first one, but it's only here once in the the second. One. No, it's at the it's in the beginning, and then there's a it plays in the background of another scene. The, the thing oh. about this, that what I was getting at though, is you got this this kill going on, and then we get this part in the police station, and this is like a thread that I can't find any documentation on why they dropped it, but they do this whole thing on a blackboard about how this guy's name corresponds with this person's name from the first one, and this girl's name is the same initials as this girl that got killed here, and Maureen is the same name as Maureen Prescott, and like they're doing this whole, like, it's a direct sequel, and I thought, how wicked elaborate is this going to be? We got to kill people with what? the same name it- and the same order I, I i that scene i thought was intriguing but did they ever circle back to it no they drop it after that exactly that's, it, that's it what was, i'm saying it was a cool thought and then it was just gone 
I'm like, why would you drop that? What a, I mean, if they had kept that up as ridiculous as that is, that like that kind of machination would have at least made me interested. Because as you meet people, yeah. you start going, wait a minute, who are they? You know, and who's the Tatum and all this kind of stuff. But they just drop it. Ron, do you have any idea why that like just died on the vine? I can only assume it's got something to do with the fact that this movie uh, went into production and was writing on the fly. Uh, because, mm. as, as you said before, this, the, the, the script leaked out onto the internet, the 1997 internet. So I guess it was on <laughs> alt. Dot screen. Hey, 1997, script. the internet was getting pretty big. So you could load it. Oh, it would take an okay. hour to load the page, but you could, you could do yeah, it. This is, this so is, I can end, only assume end, this was part of, of the, for me, so. the, the, uh, the many rewrites that this movie underwent and the, the fact that they were just kind of throwing, Pages and action shouldn't this right be caught in the... editing? I, shouldn't they have caught it in editing? They, they had like a six month turnaround to get this. They like they wanted this movie out by December, which was less than a year mm-hmm. of the first one. So I don't know how much mm-hmm. editing there actually was. They wanted it like a week earlier than the first one premiered too. As a matter of fact, the the initial get was to try to do Thanksgiving, and they just could. There was no way they could pull that off. Uh, because especially when they had to redo the ending, that that whole sequels discussion in the in the classroom, by the way, not in the first cut of the film. They had to bring people back to shoot that, to to do that because they realized we just introduced Cece in the scene of her death, and they wanted her to be more established in there, and they wanted to have that whole sequels discussion going before. So that wasn't even then there. So th- from there, like think about all the so stuff they had to pick up they and do, do two sequels talks. Yeah, exactly. So that there's two of okay. them, and because so I'm guessing the Dewey and Randy sequels talk was originally the one they wanted to go with, and so then they brought them back to do the second one, and then didn't bother taking the Dewey and Randy one. Out. Well, no, they wanted the Dewey and Randy one in there because that was the perfect layout for a trailer, and it was just supposed to be the trailer, and it ended up being such a good scene they left it, you know, because they, I like the fact that they so. both dropped it after they were both <laughs> possibly suspect. Right? Yeah, they were like, <laughs> "Well, we won't discuss funny. that." I'm a suspect. You're a suspect. I love our. Cat's little fake, like tough face. There, um, he actually has one of the best scenes in the film, though, when he's going off on Gail about her book and how crappy she treated him, like Barney Five or whatever. And he talks about how, like, that's just his way to manipulate himself into any situation. And I'm like, so I guess I'm supposed to think Dewey's manipulative enough to do this now? But from what I, I think, Dewey is really smart, <laughs> not stupid. From what I read, though, he was never a suspect, so I, I don't know. Uh, but and neither he nor Randy, Why? but. Uh, I can't see well unless he's faking all of his injuries that how can he be the suspect okay but if I'm he not starts, in, yeah if he starts faking his injuries then we're getting into scary movie territory how scary movie ends with the ending of uh the usual suspects right exactly. so is he gonna like pull the is David Arquette supposed <laughs> to like pull that little mustache off and like drop his limp and then get into a an Audi and Walk drive away, away? Mm-hmm. yeah from, Screaming you, Chaz Palminteri. You know what a great you, movie. By until the you until you said it, which we have reviewed by the way, Kurt and I did in the archives on Filmstrip. Until you said it, though, I have never realized that Dewey is doing a Kaiser Soze like limp and hand and walk this entire movie. That's exactly what David Arquette is doing. He's doing a Kevin Spacey, and I, well, I, you know, but he never comes out of it. No, because he gets. But I'm 100 sure. I'm 100 sure that nobody involved in this production 
at least not Wes Craven and Kevin Williamson, were even aware of what he was doing or why he was doing it. I guarantee well, you that was all David Arquette. I'm sure they were. I, I imagine the note was, Dewey has a limp, and they just went with that. You know, and and then he just kind of came to set and did that thing. By the way, that's his dad as the sheriff. Um, so looked much more like his dead uh, sibling, uh, um, if you've ever uh, Alexis, but uh, in the eyes especially. But anyway, that's <laughs> Lewis Arquette. But no, I mean the, the things that are happening in this movie though, you have you have the death of Cece, and then while all that happens, we have to chase Sydney through the house, and that's supposed to throw. Uh, some kind of shade on Derek, right? Because he gets cut across the arm. And I love how, you know, knowing that Mickey is the killer and is the one who probably did that uh, after everybody dispersed and stuff, is he's the one like, look at Derek. He barely got a scratch. And that other girl got torn to pieces or whatever. And like, he's trying to talk the shade, you know. And Well, and then you're a medical student. You would know how to cut yourself. Yeah, just where you wouldn't be hurt, right? And it also lends credence to your theory, Ron, that um, this is... Uh, uh, an ex-war vet that knows uh, about injuries and things. So uh, you just turned like this. It's like American Sniper becomes a psycho on a college <laughs> campus, man. You like, you've totally re- reimagined this film for me now. It's a great moment. It's now a much better movie. <laughs> Actually, if I had, if you had told me this before I rewatched it this time, I probably would have been more favorable toward it. Yes. So now I'm now he's sympathetic, darn it. So <laughs> not to mention, I will say this though. Like I think Arquette really is doing a good job playing Dewey here. I think he really is playing along and having fun. Jamie Kennedy is doing the same thing he did last time. He's just more coked up maybe or something, or at least acting like he is. But I will tell y'all both. I didn't realize that was the same guy. I thought for years that they had replaced Randy with like some, you know, other dude from Hollywood. And, that, and then a friend of mine was like, no man, it's the same dude. I'm like, no way. And I had to go look I'm, it up. And I'm surprised you didn't know. I, no, he, I, I didn't follow it right away. I didn't follow it. That he looks so different than the first movie. Am I crazy? Thinner. That's all. Is that it? I, I mean, he was kind of yeah. skinny the first time. Uh, he looks a lot thinner. <laughs> I think the beard has something to do with it. Maybe it is but, the face. Uh, yeah. Maybe it is yeah. the face, but. I don't know. Um, we'll go ahead and skip there. We're jumping all around on this thing. What did y'all make of Randy getting it in the van the way he did? I hated it, actually. I thought he should survive for number three because he's kind of the guy who gives you the rules every time. And I think that's kind of a cool character to have. So having him get slaughtered, I thought was kind of stupid. Yeah, that was really disappointing to me too because i really liked randy as a character and i even kind of liked jamie kennedy's performance even in this one like and i don't know it just feels like um like maybe jamie kennedy was hard to work with and they wanted to just get rid of him i'm wondering i i don't know like part of me thinks when uh, Mickey wasn't the other killer that they were setting up that character to be the new Randy. Cause he is a film student. He's a geek and stuff, but he doesn't like have any connection to these people other than he has a class with Randy and he hangs out in the same circles, all of which can be explained by the fact that he's trying to kill them. So <laughs> like, there's no, like, there's no way he would have ever been a substitute. So I, I sort of dismissed that. I think they wanted to shock us and get us to think that anybody could die. 
Because later when Dewey gets stabbed again, you think, well, that's got to be it for him, right? Like, you don't get struck by lightning twice, right? <laughs> yeah. so. They made it look like he was pretty much toasted. I mean, I mean holy cow, he yeah. Got stabbed he, how many times? Yeah. And I hate, I hate the excuse that they give at the end for how he survived. I you, think mean, that's you, mean the AD, you mean the ADR line that they threw in that no yes. one... That you don't see Luckily, anyone say. Some scar tissue. Yeah, because that's probably because the test audience said, "How the hell is that guy still alive? He's a marshmallow yeah. anyway, as a human being, and he's already like half a person." <laughs> and then you just cut him to bits <laughs> in in front of that woman. Like it's what he got stabbed in the first one. He got stabbed in the back. He fell out of the the door, and the guy pulled the knife out. Stu pulled the knife out of him. And that was it. There was there's nothing more to it. I'm like Mrs. Loomis cuts him to ribbons. You can hear the the sound. Of it, she just toasted. Apparently, all she hit was scar tissue. Uh, that's uh, I have a lot of scar tissue. I'm not sure it can save me from anything like that. Yeah, do you want to try stabbing yourself in it I'm, and see if it works? I'm gonna. S- I'm guessing not. I'm gonna say no. I, I mean, okay, yeah, you know, probably why. I got some really bad poison ivy on a really good scar I have on my leg once though, and it did like change the way the scar looks, but it didn't prevent me from like not having poison ivy. I would imagine not. <laughs> Are the knives in this movie much louder than the knives in the first movie? I think or is the, that just me? You talking about the swing uh, sound, yeah. as I call? Yeah, them? these knives. These knives make noise like those Nerf footballs that have the whistle in them, where you throw the football and it shrieks. Yeah. Like <laughs> these knives must have like noisemakers inside to make them swish Re- and clatter against nothing. Remember what Randy said though? It's 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 always bigger in the sequel. And I think they I think they are like making fun of that and at the same time doing it. You know, like yes, we're going to make fun of all the tropes of sequels and then we're going to do all of them while trying to deliver the same thematic element you liked last time while while making you you know suck on member berries as we stab you. So, I mean, that's what this whole movie's <laughs> built off of. I feel like. And the problem with it is, last time we got to know the characters. We liked them. This time we're thrown in with people that we we recognize, but they're up against other people that we don't care about at all. And this is the thing I was going to with the, with the CC kill. That elaborate scene, which goes on for you know 10 minutes or so, amounts to nothing. It means nothing. None of them knew her. None of them talk about, oh gosh, I'm going to really miss Cece. Like, nothing. There's nothing about that that matters other than to just have another kill and to maybe prove to us that there's more than one killer at that point. That's That does nothing thematically at all. And that's when I, I realized these people think they know everything about sequels, but they have no idea what really makes one work because... There are things that happen that don't make, that don't do anything for the whole rest of the plot. It it doesn't make any difference that Sarah Michelle Geller gets stabbed and thrown off of that that building. Like it doesn't matter at all. And and she, it's just ridiculous. Is she a big star at this point? Like is is Buffy a big hit at this point? Or? At that at this, at this point, yeah. But people knew Buffy. It was a big thing, and it was a it was a neat thing to get her to do this. And to do that, I know what you did last summer. And look, she was like any young actress at that point. You're going to throw a movie at her. She's a TV actress. She's going to take it, especially one that's coming off the you know, one of the biggest horror films of all time. That you know, shoot, yeah, you know, that's at that point. You got to remember too. She worked for Fox, and that's all tied in in some hoary way with the Weinstein's at that point in Miramax and everything. So I'm sure they said, "Hey, it'll get a huge bump for the TV show if you go do this." 
So, I mean, yeah, she was a so she would have been a known quantity. Is her kill supposed to be another echo of the Drew Barrymore kill in the first movie? Yeah, it's, it's supposed to be exactly that kill. Yes, because I and that, that. did that kill make any difference? Yeah, I mean, yeah, because Casey Anthony had dated Stu. So okay, yeah, that that's the difference. Yeah, so there was I'm more glad of you pointed reason. that. All right, I'm glad you pointed that out. Yes, that is the, the the biggest difference. That was there was a connection between those two people. Now the boyfriend is still the useless one in that whole scene, and they never really talk about him. But Casey had dated Stu, and so that mattered. Cece, as far as we know, didn't even know these people. You know, <laughs> like she she didn't know who any of these people were. She, I mean, she had a class with another girl, and oh, she, oh, she had a class with Randy, she and knew he, Randy, and he didn't even act like he knew who she was when she was talking to him. So whoop de doo. But yeah. it, it just, it's just another point too. I think that this movie is really, uh, you you can tell that this movie was written on the fly because yeah. you've already got a cold open kill where you kill off. Uh, you know, Major League Two and, and Jason's lyric, they were both Omar Epps and Jada Pinkett were both fairly big stars at this point. Cause I mean, she'd done, yeah. um, she was, had been on a different world. She'd been in Menace to society. She'd That's a been great movie, in, by the way, she'd been in the awesome tales from the crypt demon night, <laughs> which we have also reviewed available in the archive. And I mean, Omar Epps was on ER. Yeah. So, and, you know, he's been was- in higher learning and, and the program, which everyone, which I remember from my high school days because some idiot laid down in the road like they do in the program and got murdered. Yeah, you can't find you can't find that version of the film anymore, by the way. You have to go to the dark end of the Internet to see that scene. But Yeah, I remember that. So. I mean, so <laughs> it's like it's like they didn't realize they'd already done this with. Uh, Jada Pinkett and, and Omar Epps, and they decided, well, we got to do it again because people expect it. So they just recreated uh, Drew Barrymore this time with Sarah Michelle Gellar. And see, that that's the thing that I feel like like someone told Williamson, hey, you you need like we need a star we can kill in the middle here, and we need a blonde white girl we can kill here, almost specifically. And he's like, well, I killed these people in the beginning, and then I think he even looked at it because he's the one that came up with this, and you know, and. I think he looked at it and said, well, you know, that opening is really sort of my treatise on, you know, the irony of black actors in horror movies. And wouldn't it be funny if they have two of them fussing about it and then you kill them? And I want to kind of riff on Sandra Bullock. And, you know, he just it was just him doing his dialogue heavy thing that he likes to do. And then they're like, well, we need like we need to recreate the tension of that, because also if if Cece is not killed right there, by the way, nothing is happening for like 30 minutes in this movie. So much like the principal Hembry kill, which was thrown into, we got to, we got to whack somebody else here in the middle. I think they were like, we got to kill somebody. And we got Sarah over here said she would do this. And she probably was there for three days. You know, it should have been, yeah. been Tom Bosley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Maybe he was like picking up a hefty trash bag outside. He was like the janitor at the school. That would have worked. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you've already killed the principal of the high school. Why not kill the the college janitor? That's basically the same thing. Either that or you have Ron Howard like as the history professor. He could have been the film professor, for goodness sakes. I guess they didn't want to pay him. So Well, so then you could have got Clint Howard and nobody would have known the difference. <laughs> he was probably doing one of those Silent Night, Deadly Night sequels at the point or something like that. But anyway, talking about a- telling me they couldn't. 
they couldn't pry him away from the set of the ice cream man. Hey, man, <laughs> the man's got priorities, okay? So, so he's, he's hard to get. But I, I think we're, we're proving the point here, though, is that there's so like little of anything of interest that happens until this movie hits the third act. And when Randy gets killed, I'm with you, Brian. I was mad. Like, I wanted him to hang around. As, and I don't like necessarily enjoy Jamie Kennedy's work, but I do think he's good in this role, and I think he was really good for this film. And when they off him that way, I just I was really disappointed. I was like, well, now I don't have anybody I want to listen to talk anymore. Because they've done something to Gail Weathers here, and I don't know if it's those freaking weird red highlights or something in the make. Courtney Cox looks so, like, pissed off and stressed out and she's screaming half the time. I just don't like her in this movie. I liked her in the last one, but I just don't dig her in this movie at all. And, uh, I, and so I don't want to listen to her. Dewey's a little bit of him goes a long way. We're not going to spend any time on Sydney anymore because all she can do is stand there and cry and look helpless in front of Derek. Um, which can we talk about the singing scene at the, the lunchroom where he breaks out the... No, let's please don't. Oh, Ugh. okay. You're the musician of, of the three of us here, Brian. So go ahead and critique his uh, I, I Think I Love You. I'm not you. the only one, sir. <laughs> You're the only one that's still practicing, so... Well, I'm trying to get you, but anyway. Um, yeah, it was horrible. And I think it was horrible just like Tom Cruise's was horrible. So, hey, you know, I guess they just wanted to recreate stupidity. And they wait a minute, wait a minute. succeeded are, are you talking greatly. About, are you talking about Tom Cruise and Top Gun or Rocks of Rock of Ages? Does it matter? It kind of Both movies are terrible. It, it truly is. So, um, so, uh, it, Top Gun is not terrible, though, sir. Yes, I, it's terrible. Okay, to be settled on another day. So, uh, but... So we have that because I think we're supposed to finally let Derek off the hook, but we're going to put him back on it almost literally at the end once again. But that's supposed to be this big show of love. And he gives her his Greek letters necklace, which is supposed to be some kind of a man. I I don't know about where like you guys went to college. Like the Greek dudes mostly had tattoos of their letters and like they didn't have anything to give any, but that was like a high school thing to give your girlfriend your letter jacket or your ring or something. None of the dudes I went to college with like, they weren't given anything, uh, you know, necessarily metal and tangible to the girls they dated. Most likely in the bacterial form. I was, I was going to say, do, do, do roofies count as a gift? <laughs> well, I'm, syphilis. I'm, I'm just going to let all that Crabs. go. So we're just, you guys are putting actual words to what I was thinking. So there we go. Now we're, now we're all there. And, and can we talk to uh, about the scene where Randy gets it? Yeah. Can we talk about the technology change in one year's time, please? In the previous film, we had a computer with Windows ninety five dialing a nine one one call, right? And then handheld phones, which were fairly new at the time. We are now graduated to cell phones in one year's time, and this is true because I, mm-hmm. well, you know, obviously true because they put it in the movie. But I remember uh, in ninety six ish, I was running around with a pager. <laughs> were you dealing in dope? <laughs> no, uh, and everyone had a pager, dude. I know. I in nineteen ninety seven, I got my first cell phone. Wow! Because I worked for a company that sold them, right? So how cool is that? I, that we've uh, all of a sudden everyone on campus has cell phones. Hey, look at that the that cell phone too, that flip phone that Gail's running around with. That thing weighed at least four pounds and would get up to at least <laughs> eighty five degrees. 
when it was in operation. <laughs> like the- I had a Sprint Flip flip phone from Motorola. Oh, God. <laughs> what a pile of shit that <laughs> was. <laughs> well, but you know what? See, that's, I why, did- that's why I never realized that this was in Ohio until you said that. I always assumed this was California because there were so many... 1996 cell phones. cell phones. You know, it's because it, it's because it's shot in California. The only reason I know that, by the way, is through painstakingly digging through the Scream Wikia page, and it's saying if you look at the cop cars and their license plates, they all say Ohio. And so, like, you see that, and it's like, ah, uh, okay. And this is supposed to be like a small liberal arts college in Ohio. It's not supposed to be a big place because, again, these people well, would go to a small it, place to get away from it all, which I kind of get. And it, it should be obvious because Gail Withers isn't going to go to California to be around Sydney Prescott. I mean, she's there seriously. <laughs> she's she's still yeah, in L.A. It's Ohio, yeah, like she. Got, it's Ohio, and you know, and Cotton Weary is not going to travel there either. Okay, so. we got to talk about him, Cotton. Weary, Liev Schreiber. Now, in the first movie, he's barely a cameo on a TV screen somewhere, right? I didn't even mm-hmm. know that was him until years later. I was like, oh, he actually was in the first one. Okay. And at this point, like, he's somebody, right? Like, people know him from stuff. Not like maybe they do now, but he comes back to do this, and all he does is walk around waiting for his, like, what does he think he's going to get? A big payday out of a. Uh, 2020 type interview from what i understand those weren't like you didn't get like a million thousand dollars man i mean is i guess that is that Each. good i don't know <laughs> i mean isn't ten thousand dollars in prison isn't ten thousand dollars in 1996 like a million dollars these days is that what <laughs> i don't know you haven't gotten that much inflation <laughs> yeah it's not that bad bro but it's but you're not you're not far <laughs> off so, i mean um, it's huge, but I mean, really though, I'm huge, like, I'm huge. like, is this is this really that big of a? I guess it is. I mean, I get it though from his well, character's I mean, point of been, view. He he wants he's retribution. Been ruined. Yeah, he, yeah, he's been ruined. I mean, who's going to hire him to work for them? He's been accused of murder. Even if he was given, you know, proved to be innocent, there's still that shadow of doubt in many people's minds. I mean, look at. Look at all this anti-vax stuff, right? It's been proven that the guy who said that vaccinations cause autism is completely a, a complete liar. But mm-hmm. still people cling to that, right? Right. So there's people who probably think Cotton Weary is guilty still. And so I, they're not going to hire him. So he's looking for any way to get money. Can I tell you what I think and this, fame. Is a, this is a riff on, though? Because the, Randy drops it in his you know serial killer Hall of Fame thing that he's laying out for a uh, the ghost face killer on the phone. I think this is a riff on OJ Simpson. That was still a thing at the time. And making fun of that That's and calling OJ the killer about. at in 1997 was not something that happened like regularly. And I think Williamson at, dialed that up heavy with the cotton weary. It's like, well, if he's innocent, I guess well, I, what would it be like to be OJ? You know, or whatever out there trying to find the real killers. And if you, and you know, they have a good scene in the police department after the party scare and stuff where they're they're grilling. Oh no, he like gets in front of Sid at a library and talks trash to her or something before the two maybe gay, maybe not gay cops, you know, beat him up. And and they had that whole thing about like he's like I'm innocent you have to let me go and he's like being so sincere and earnest and I'm like did nobody tell Liev what kind of movie he was in man because he's given this way more than it deserves. Well, I'm sure he's doing that to get another part sometime down the road, right? Make yourself look good. Yeah, I mean, I don't think 
I'm going to disagree that he was like a thing. Really? At this point. Yeah, because... Okay. I mean, it's not like he... Uh, I mean, what what had he been in like to make him noteworthy? Well, that, that's what I'm asking. Like, I don't, I know I've seen him in a lot of stuff. I don't know how far back it goes. Like, I know this is before he did the X-Men Origins thing. It's before he did something like Sphere, um, which was a, a big deal at the time. It wasn't a good movie, but it was a big deal to be in it. And I, I mean, he was a big theater guy, too. So maybe he hadn't yeah. really done TV and film a lot at this point. But He hasn't done a whole lot of well-known stuff. The biggest thing he did was he was in Mixed Nuts in 1994. But that's not known for him. No, but he's so, he's great so. in mixed nuts, though. I by the third one, he is a big deal. We'll talk about that next time. So because it that getting him back was a, a thing at the at that moment. But uh, another topic for another day. But as far as the character Cotton, the original script again is that Mrs. Loomis has been working in construct with. Um, Hallie and Derek to do this, you know, terrorism to Sydney, and it's it's almost in the movie, but you can tell that it's been cut out because he has this one line at the end where he's like, "You're not from Channel Whatever." To her, she is supposed to be the reporter that has drug him there, and and has made like this big deal to him, and th- she figured if I can just get him close enough, he will snap on her and he'll help me kill her too, and he becomes a killer at the end before Sydney has to kill them all. And I wanted to ask you guys, like, what would you have thought of that if they they brought him back and actually made him part of the Quadro of terror, as it were. Hmm. I don't think I would have cared for it. I don't yeah. think that would have fit. Yeah, that. I mean, it would have fit with um, uh, Mrs. Loomis's revenge trip because mm-hmm. he would want revenge for that year he spent in jail and and the defamation of his yeah. good name, but. I don't think someone having been so recently released from prison would be anxious to go back to prison. And I got to say, the only way that works is if he actually did kill the mom in the first place and was part of a a trio um, who actually went to jail for the other two. And it just doesn't work for me. That's an excellent point. And probably, among other reasons, why they dropped it. I mean, uh, besides the leak on the internet. But uh, I don't know that it would have worked either. Because I kind of like the idea that Cotton is this sort of put-upon guy who was in the wrong place at the wrong time, got framed, and now is trying to put his life back together. And I thought, how hard would that be? And I, I remembered back to a friend of mine from high school who... When we, you know, after we were out of high school, had got accused of a, along with a couple of other guys, of a horrible crime that they had nothing to do with. And it took him years, years to rebuild any kind of a reputation. In fact, he built a career and a life outside of the, the state that we grew up in because he couldn't get anybody to look at him and not remember, you know, this horrible thing that he had nothing to do with. Yeah. You know, and I so, think that's the yeah. that's exactly what I, to my point before is that Cotton is trying to get money any way he can. If and if by selling his story to some news people to get a, a few thousand dollars is that what he has to do? That's what he's going to do. Plus, he, he wants the fame, but mm. he he's not going to get hired anywhere near that town. No, and like he has people. He has to be a celebrity now because he can't like do anything normal for a living anymore, right? Like, mm-hmm. there's no exactly. There's no way he's like. And I like it too because it does make him a more sympathetic character, I think. And um, 
it also makes him being a hero at the end stick and matter um, because he does kill Mrs. Loomis, Debbie Saw. Like, yeah, Sydney shoots her in the head while she's laying on the ground, but she doesn't make any move after he shoots her in the neck. Like, he, he puts her down. <laughs> and uh, I also think that he, maybe he used the reel when he jumps on the stage and that little crouch or whatever. Like, that was his tryout for X-Men Origins Wolverine. Like, he just showed him that. <laughs> and was like, hey, I can do this. You know? So that was 10 years ago, guys. Come on. So, <laughs> but anyway, no, I, I'm glad Cotton is not part of the killing here. But uh, he is a good suspect. And I won't lie and tell you that the first time I saw this movie, I thought, this it's going to be Cotton. It's going to be Cotton and this news lady. You know, because it's it's makes it would work you know and i'm i'm glad they didn't do it um i i always felt like mickey timothy oliphant was too obvious and that's only because timothy oliphant always looks like he's the evil twin of clint eastwood <laughs> you know or something like no nice. see i was thinking that Liev schreiber would be too obvious because he just looks like he should be the murderer right yeah and i think that would have been an an, an, an obvious to put it on him, but it didn't make sense to me um, going through. Uh, honestly, throughout this whole movie, I didn't even look at Mickey at all or care about his character to think he would be the killer. So when he turned out to be the killer, I was kind of like, um, okay. <laughs> yeah, you talk about a guy that is a superhero, though. Now, Timothy Oliphant's a decently built guy. All right, he's pretty tall, and you know he can do stuff. The, uh, the, well, one more reason on on why Cotton can't be this, and it, it made me think about it when I said that about all the fans. Liam Schreiber's also a foot taller than everybody else on the set, so if he had that costume on, you'd know it. I mean, that's the other thing that should be the dead giveaway. But Oliphant, though, when when the two cops are going to take Sydney and her roommate that we haven't talked about at all, Hallie, away to someplace or whatever, when he goes to kill them, like. He com- he completely goes like Michael Myers superhero on that one cop and rips his throat out basically, and then like you know dances on the you know, drives the car runs over the other cop survives that wreck. I mean this guy's made out of steel. Or PCP that other cop took it pretty bad, man. Well, he did. Holy yeah, well, you cow. know what? they cut away from that too. But like, there's a there's like a final destination kill in the middle of that. It's pretty bad. Yeah. Uh. That looked awful. But yeah, I mean, he gets in the that big wreck trying to get the cop off the car and gets knocked unconscious. Now, who thought that, that this ghost face was going to wake up while the roommate was getting out? I did. I did. I thought she was going to get stopped and then it was going to be a little struggle. Yeah, that seemed that It would seemed have been the be perfect like, time to kill her, I think. I mean, that would have made sense if they hadn't decided at the last minute not to make her one of the ghost faces. Well, like if they'd yeah, gone through with the plan to have the four of them kill her, it, right. it would have. That makes more sense than to, you know, have him wake up immediately well, and then after. Just have him, yeah, and then just have him come out and attack her anyway. Well, I think it would have been a lot cooler had he stopped her from getting out and took her down at that point. This is supposed to mirror the Tatum death, the best friend death. From the first movie. That's what Williamson says, at least. Yeah, is, is, is it doesn't. Well, I know. That's the thing, though. Is, but this is what he says. And this, I'm going to tear it apart here with you. He says, this is supposed to mirror the Tatum death because the best friend is dead. And we you know, we wanted to kill her after we you know, took her off the killer list. And I said, well, the problem with that is Sydney didn't know Tatum was dead until like the until after the it was end. over. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, she didn't even know she was dead when you guys were talking all that trash in the kitchen. Like that's that's news. I'm like she she wasn't there for that. So is it supposed to be like worse on her because she sees it? I mean, she's seen a lot of people killed at this point. I don't think you can scar poor Sydney Prescott anymore. Yeah, I, 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 it makes it doesn't mirror anything in my opinion, and in fact, I think it's kind of silly the way it goes down. Instead, mm-hmm. she wants to go get a look at who it is. Yeah, well, duh, you had your chance and you missed it. Hey, you know what? Um, that didn't work out for Jamie Lee Curtis in, in Halloween Resurrection, <laughs> which was many years later, but still the same idea. It just don't unmask the killer. It doesn't do you any. What do you expect? Who cares right. at that point? Mm-hmm. Yeah. We can, I want to talk about Sydney here for a minute, though, too, because we skipped over a, a big part of her character in this movie, and it's part that I just cannot get on board with at any time. Why would a girl that was that traumatized by such a, a horrible event go into something as outward-focused as theater and acting to, like, overcome all of that? stuff she doesn't play at all like the kind of people that would be doing cassandra in oedipus and all this stuff besides all the referential part of it like i i thought like you know she should have been writing the book with gail you know or something like that like she would have been an english major like this girl is not a theater major like that randy is a film major makes total sense her is a theater major it's a dumb idea well i think that um she even points out that she's doing really well in theater until this resurfaces. So if, I mean, obviously she thinks this is all done, right? Everything's put to rest. Well, yeah, why well, would finally you? move on? <laughs> I mean, so she goes in the theater. Maybe that's a passion of hers. I guess we never really knew. Um, but it doesn't come back to haunt her until all this shit starts happening up again. No, you just hit right? it. It's something we knit with. There was nothing in that first movie that would have even lent you to the idea that Sydney was into theater. Like, I'm like, I don't. It just seems to come out of nowhere. And look, I, look, I work in the field. I know people change their minds when they go to college, whatever. But this is not the kind of person that would do something like this. I, Ron, you weigh in on this. What do you think? Um, I mean, it does seem weird. Uh, to I, I think the only reason she's a theater major is so we can have that finale in the the on the stage where Sydney knows what ropes to cut to drop the hot lights and how to use that um, Frankenstein laboratory <laughs> looking console to trigger all the special effects and whatnot. I think that's the only reason that she is a drama major. Because you're right. Yeah. I don't see why surviving, you know, a murder attempt would make you the sort of person to want to be an actress. Unless, of course, she's like tapping into her deep-seated emotional traumas and, like, doing, like, a Stella Adler thing. Well, in that case, she would like, be going into psychology and doing therapy. That I could buy. I would I would totally believe that, that this horrible experience led her toward the, the helping profession. I could totally buy that. This doesn't make any sense, and I think it's one of those things that it exists only so we can have that set piece, so we can do that. You know, and they have two big scenes with the theater. I mean, you have the one where she's talking to her professor, and then you have the the rehearsal scene, and Ghostface is running around, and you're supposed to be wondering, is that her imagination, or is it Ghostface? It's obviously Ghostface. It's probably Mickey at that point, running around, screwing around, messing with her head. 
Um, I, I took it as her imagination. Uh, it's, it's actually him. Or it's actually Ghostface, though, because if you there's a there's a couple of in cut scenes. But again, you read deep enough on the Wikia page, you find these things. You can actually see that an extra set of people walking away that wouldn't weren't a part of the actors mm, at some okay. point. So that it's it's an insert cut, but Craven stuck it in there because he wanted to make sure people realized no, that's really Ghostface. So, like, he went out of his way to do that. They couldn't get the plot straight, but we got that shot in there. So, um, I think I would have liked it better if it was her imagination. That would have been fun if we didn't already because have. Then she's. We didn't she's already have a, evidence that this stuff is going on again, though. That's the problem. No, 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 that. but, but we are, I, no, I, I, I don't think so. I think it triggers that uh, paranoia in her. And I think it would have worked very well to have her seeing things, especially in a scene where everyone's wearing a mask. Yeah, I'm going to agree with Brian on that. I think that would have been a good, uh, added just a little layer of um, unreliable narrator to her. I'm going to only argue the counter to it is this. By not having it be that way for her, it actually solidifies all the time Sydney talks about being a survivor and a fighter and how strong she is and stuff like that. Because... That that's evidenced by the fact that she isn't losing her mind and she does trust her gut and she knows this is, you know, bad. Like she is, she's her own Cassandra. She knows this is bad. And I, I like the fact that they don't fake it out on that again, too, because in the movie, it would have made no sense because we know there's a killer <laughs> like this. It would, it would only work if that was the opening scene. And then you cut to the movie. Now, that would have been interesting. That would have been kind of fun. Catch up with Sydney at college. No. And then but, you know, we didn't do I don't that. Think so. it, I don't think it would have worked if you did it as the opening scene because somebody... she shouldn't be having she shouldn't be having those kind of hallucinations. In well, the opening scene, because it was all taken care of, it would have worked. But once it starts having, once it starts up again, now she's 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 screwed, right? Let me, I mean, she has to deal with it all over again. Let me rewrite it and tell you how it would work: is if you have her having that conversation with a counselor, whomever, about well, the book's been out, you know, two years now, and now the movie's coming out, and it's just bringing all this back up again. And I mean, she gets the prank call, so she could, you know, we could even skip that, and she could just say, you know, I get the calls, I'm thinking about all this junk again, I don't know if I can do this right now, and then he gets her in the whole, I don't believe you, you know, and and motivates her, and she's like, I'm a fighter, and then we cut to whatever else. That It would have worked in that way. Now, that's not how the movie's done, you're right. So the way it exists now, it wouldn't matter, but... um I think there's a way it could have worked, but they weren't trying to make that kind of movie. Let's, uh, they were trying to make a movie that riffed on sequels while being a sequel at the same time. So um, I guess we're at the end of the finale now, the showdown in the theater. And I, this is my favorite performance part for Timothy Oliphant. I already said he reminded me of Stephen Jeffries from Fright Night. Either one of you have any idea what I'm talking about there? Nope. Not at all. Now, if you've never seen the original Fright Night, you owe it to yourself to go watch it. There's an actor in it named Stephen Jeffries. He plays a character named Evil Ed, and he has basically the same haircut and the same like inflection Timothy Oliphant's doing at the end when he's talking all that trash to Sydney, except he's about a foot shorter and a hundred pounds lighter. But he's but he's like the geeky horror friend in the movie. You need to go see. I can't believe I'm talking to you two. Haven't seen Fright Night. I'm going to fix that. I know some somebody's getting some DVDs in the mail. So, but anyway, um, <laughs> let me go call Amazon now. But you're, that drone sound you hear is not the government's peering at you. It's my package coming to you. So, but anyway, he's doing his best wig out 
And I, I love the way he, like, the camera and him work around the stage there. He's got the gun in one hand, the knife in the other. He swaps them over while she's trying to get away. He, you know, throws enough doubt on Derek that she backs up long enough for him to shoot him. I mean, I, I liked the way he unveiled his plans and his plot. And for the most part, I, it's ridiculous, but I kind of like the fact that Mrs. Loomis realized, well, I got to go get revenge, but I got to have somebody, you know, that's physically capable of doing some damage to people. So as Ron has surmised, she went and found a PTSD victim and, uh, on an internet chat board and got him, uh, going, which I don't know if you caught that or not, Brian, there's some more technology for you. It's, uh, some kind of, uh, listserv they were all on for serial killer fanboys or something. Really, really strange. Sure. Yeah. So uh, but. it's like, uh, it's like back then when you were on AOL and you got into a chat room. Uh, about uh-huh. certain things, right? Yeah, they, it was a, it was chat a, rooms for everything. Yeah, it was a chat room. You are correct. So, uh, but I think but yeah. that um, her being so strong in a way kind of makes the uh, makes Mickey's attempt to muddy the waters not as successful or feel a little more artificial. Because, like you said, she trusts her gut. She's a survivor, blah, blah, blah. Well, why does she believe... Um, why does she choose that moment to start doubting herself? I, because of past uh, her own past trauma, maybe? The boyfriend did it before? I'm with you. I agree with what you're saying. You're right. But I think that's what we're supposed to buy from it, is that, well, I, you know, I, I believe Billy up to the point that I screwed him, and then... Uh, you know that he turned out to be the killer. So how could, maybe I'm wrong again. You know, it's just an, just enough doubt. It's like just all, all he needed her to do was take two steps back anyway, so he could shoot. Which he could have just shot Derek anyway. <laughs> you know, it's not like he Jerry O'Connell wasn't in a compromised position, as it were. I think he just wanted to fuck with her. Yeah, I I, I agree with Jay on that one. I think that uh, the whole past plays in a big part here. That. The boyfriend, because she was betrayed by her boyfriend before, and let's face it, there's plenty of opportunity here to cast some doubt on uh, Jerry O'Connell's character. So I can see that being the case. I think that's one of the reasons why they included that weird song and dance number that Jerry O'Connell does. It's to make us look at him and be like, oh, uh, something's wrong with this guy because, I mean... (laughs) Russian dancing on top of somebody's salad bowl. <laughs> maybe, maybe that was it. I, you know, that might be the byproduct of it. I think they wanted us to think he really loves her, and and he even like his dying words are like, "I would have never hurt you," you know. So, um, and I, you know, <laughs> right? Yeah, and then he just got he's taken up out of the way because we're done with him, and we don't need to see him anymore. So, um, I I don't know I. I, I like that point up until the point that it all starts becoming this like shootout Mexican standoff thing. Cause okay. Laurie Metcalf shows up with that gun. Right. And she, you know, we talked about last time how Gail holding that Beretta looked like she didn't know what the hell she was doing. Right. Well, she didn't look like she knows what she's doing with that Glock either. And like, she's shaking the whole time or whatever. And then she like just caps Mickey, you know, out of nowhere. And you know, puts five or six in him, right? 
he gets off a shot and shoots Gale into the orchestra pit. And I'm like, okay, first off, you just took a shot in the side, bounce off of a rib, my ass. That's going to go straight through it at that range. And two, you just fell in an orchestra pit. I don't know if you guys have been around orchestra pits. It's not exactly a shortfall. So, and there's stuff to hit on the way down. <laughs> That's true. So I'm like, Gale and Dewey should both be dead at this point. So, so that's another problem that I'm going to have. So it, it becomes this Western shoot 'em up standoff at that point. And I, I, you know, I know Sydney thwarts them last, you know, in the last one with the guns, but I kind of, I always kind of hate that the ending of these screen movies always goes around somebody shooting somebody because that's the thing in a horror movie is if you ever had a gun oh man you could do you could do something to somebody until jason zombie showed up but you know the gun was like the ultimate weapon and now it's like yeah it just kind of feels i don't know cheap right i think so too and um it would have been better if she used the killer's weapon but the knife yeah well, well, I think I, anyway. I would have been fine if the like, and by the way, whatever that college is devoting to their theater department, bravo! Those special effects were amazing. If like the special effects had like you know <laughs> electrocuted her or something, so because like that was impressive. It looked like she was throwing the electric chair there. Yeah, yeah. I mean, they did, a, every time she flipped the switch. Yeah, yeah, they did drop like hundreds of pounds of lights at her. Something I know. Have, like. There should be some live cables down there. Right. Like there's that that should have taken her down. Like that would have been fine with that. If like something had swung by and just cracked her. Right? And like that would have been okay. I didn't need the shootout at the OK Corral, which is kind of what we got here. And I feel like that again is the the compromise of an ending that had to be changed late in the process and a film that they were in a real hurry to get done. And there's a story that like Williamson discovered that there were guards outside of his office at, at Miramax making sure he was getting pages of scream done every day. Like the the Weinstein's hired people just to make sure he was working on it. <laughs> And not working just on Dawson's Creek or whatever else he had going on at the time. So I think he had like that. He had a movie going. And teaching Mrs. Tingle was going on. He had like six or seven other things going at the same time. So the guy was working himself to death. So I, maybe it's a product of just like, yeah, whatever. You know, it's over. And then that's it. But, you know, Cotton shows up at the end. That's the, the, the cool part. Cotton finds the other, other gun. Right. And and does his great leap onto the stage. And I do like the little back and forth he has. And like you realize he's telling Sydney, I need you to step to the side so I can shoot this lady. And they have that whole <laughs> Diane Sawyer thing. I That was funny. I, that was like actual good comedy there. Yeah, that that really uh, that whole thing kind of worked for me, too. But yeah, that was a re- really enjoyable little sequence. <laughs> and it it, it kind of helps. I don't know. It kind of helps flesh out Cotton Weary a little bit more because he's yeah. not just a brooding quasi sociopath. Right. Because at the end, he's like, <laughs> oh, oh, that was intense. Oh, wow. Oh, Sydney, I would never like, you know, like, right. We're cool. Right. And she's like, give me the gun. He's like, of course. You know, like he's just sort of shaking. And I'm like, you know, that's actually real, though. I give that because Shriver's an amazing actor and, and found something there to do. I don't think that was written for him. And I'm certain Craven didn't direct him to do it that way because that's not what he does. I, I imagine he did that and it, it works in that moment for that part of the role uh, for sure. 
But but the thing I hate though, man, is okay. Gail lives fine, whatever. So Gail Gail's alive. We have that whole ridiculous thing there, and then she gets the other gun, and they're both looking at uh, Mrs. Loomis, thinking, "Should we shoot her again?" And then Mickey does like that. What was that resurrection from the deep thing he did before they <laughs> shot him a hundred thousand times and blew him twenty feet backward? It was the. I'm still alive and I'm going to kill you. And then you're like, what was the point of that? <laughs> no, yeah. I'm like, he did not. They always come back. Did we need that again? I would have been fine if like that didn't happen and Sydney just capped one in her anyway and said, well, not this time. You know, I, I would have been okay with that, that she is that cold and that hard. Because after these two experiences, I can totally believe she's not finishing the semester. Like, she's done. You know, Sydney's going away, you know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. I I agree with you. I don't think there was a point to having Mickey get up, other than the fact that they always come back. I mean, I, I think that genre. I think they did do that to try to to further tie it back into the uh, Friday the Thirteenth ending with the surprise oh. Jason uh, child leaping up out of the lake or whatever, or the carry or hand he- grab thing. Or even part two, where he just jumps through the window for reasons, and then the next day he's not there. So, <laughs> yeah, the part two is probably more appropriate. Uh, but yeah. I, I mean, I think that's why they did it. But I don't think it's necessary. I think it would have been fine to just have. I think it would have been better just to have uh, Sydney just go shoot uh, Jackie in the head, like <laughs> ja- Jackie from Roseanne. That would have been her name. So. <laughs> anyway, if you didn't know, so. But yeah, I I would have been fine with that. So as long as Booker came to pick her up for that date on time, dang it, George Clooney was such a schmuck. Anyway, so like guys, I, do, I think we're at the, I, go ahead. I do have to say that once uh, <laughs> Debbie goes goes full uh, Mrs. Voorhees, it's she's a whole lot of fun to watch. Oh no, look, Laurie Metcalf is a lot of fun to watch as an actress. I can't ever say that I've seen her in something that I didn't think she was not giving a good performance in. Like she's usually a side thing, and most things I've seen her in, like I, most recently, I rewatched Oliver Stone's JFK, and she's in that for uh, you know good fifteen twenty minutes. She gets a lot of dialogue at one point, and she's good. I'm like she's she's a good character actor. Like that she just delivers good lines, and she's believable because she looks like somebody you would know. Like she just looks so normal, and you, I, I like her when she goes psycho too. She's good at that. Do you think her um, the the scene where she's chasing Buffy through the house uh, would have worked better if it had been uh, staged more like um, the fight at the end of the original Friday the Thirteenth? How it takes them like forever to beat each other up. Yes, I think it would have it would have worked totally better. I think it would have also been a dead giveaway that one of these killers is not like the other because of how quickly the people in the theater got dispatched versus, you know, the way Buffy went down in the, in the house. Yeah. I think it would have worked a lot better if it had been a little more even keeled. And as it is, I mean, Sarah Michelle Geller throws a bike at her and gets a few licks in, but that's the thing. Like every ghost face gets the crap beat out of them by somebody that they kill like that. That always happens. So yeah, it might have worked better that way. So the very end though, where Gail finds Dewey, we've already talked about how ridiculous the scar tissue thing is, but there's a character moment there. She she gives up the story because Joel the cameraman 
uh, comes back and wants her to do the big you know live shot, and she's like, "Screw it, I'm getting on the you know, the ambulance with Dewey." And she does that, and then Sydney sends all the news reporters to Cotton, who <laughs> I love how he gives them a card, like, there's a price for everything. <laughs> I've got a business card. <laughs> I don't have a job, but I have a business Pay me card. money. <laughs> but I do, I do like that she, that ending made sense, and then Sydney just kind of, you know, exits stage left, and she's just gone. And I, I like that idea. Um, that worked. Gail and Dewey winding up together, fine. <laughs> you know, I, I didn't really, invest anything in their relationship well, i think that they, i think that uh, they played up that they were going to get together in the first one so having right. them finally come back together again in the second one made sense to me i want to ask you guys do you think they got together for a short period and then like she broke it off again once her you know book and everything took precedence or did, did it just never do anything and then the book came out and he was like holy cow this woman thinks i'm a barney five i think it was a fling right mm -hmm. a, a fling i think they had Semi feelings for each other, Dewey more so than Gail. Then she got uh, busy with her book, and uh, she became a little too mu famous to have a dweeb lying around. <laughs> kind of like what happened in real life. I was going to say that, that exactly. Oddly enough, mirrors, mirrors, mirrors my life, <laughs> mirrors the life there, Brian. But uh, anyway, so You're bringing up bad memories. Yeah, well, we'll get to those because that's a couple movies away. But guys, <laughs> we're at the part of the podcast though where it's definitely time to give final thoughts and popcorn ratings. So, what are yours for Scream Two, Brian? Well, um, there's some decent stuff in this movie and all that, but overall, it just. It's not memorable enough for me to want to go back and watch again, as I think is evidenced by the fact that I forgot most of what happened in this movie in the first place. So to me, I'm going to go with a small popcorn. Um, one was so much better. And uh, I think when we get to three, even that's going to be so much better than two is. But we'll see when we get there. So small popcorn for me. Ron? Uh, I'm going to go with um, a medium popcorn. It is very much a forgettable movie but the the things that do work work really well i think like i really like uh laurie metcalf's performance is really good i enjoyed timothy oliphant making constant crazy faces uh and you know it, it's got some good things but you can clearly tell that they went into production with no script and at certain points, they're trying to figure out ways to uh, connect the, the set pieces <laughs> that they have written. Um, but enough of it works to, to keep me from making it uh, a small popcorn. It's a, a medium popcorn, but there's no butter or salt on it. I started this show asking you guys for some of your favorite and not so favorite sequels, entries into horror franchises and stuff like that. And I have racked my brain for the last several days trying to think if there was another part two of something in a franchise, and I meant even outside of horror, just a part two that I felt so let down by and was such a come down from the first one. And I can't think of one that fails as miserably as this movie does. Matrix Reloaded? Ooh, that... 
Part of a that's tri- a good one. Part of a trilogy, not a sequel. So well, this is kind <laughs> of a quadrology. Well, it was planned to be a you know, uh, yeah. Good point. Okay, that one that that's a good one, uh, Ron. Th- I had forgotten about the Matrix. So Matrix Reloaded, yes. Um, right, maybe it's right up in there with that. It's that same feeling that it's just so bereft of anything that I want to remember or care about. I've seen this movie probably a dozen times in my life, guys. And it it is like we mentioned at the beginning, uh, bad pizza or Chinese food. It's just kind of there and gone. It's cotton candy. I mean, it's everything I want it to be. It does everything I say I want in a horror movie and a horror sequel, but none of it really stays. And oddly enough, I don't think even as it made the same money as the last one, basically, oddly enough, when they go to do the third one, they almost completely ignore that this one even happens. Uh, if memory serves correct from part three, that they didn't even, I don't think they referenced much of it. It's such a strange thing to watch the redux of what I liked last time done so haphazardly. And if it weren't for performances like Jamie Kennedy's and David Arquette's and Timothy Oliphant and Laurie Metcalf, I I would have a hard time watching this. And I'm not knocking Nev uh, or anything. I don't think she was given much of anything to do except look terrified and like she was on the verge of tears at all times, which may be like her acting thing anyway. I'm trying to think of anything I've seen her in where she didn't look that way. Um, And Courtney Cox was awful in this, but that may have been the script. But either way, those those side characters carry it, but they're not in it enough to really make me care about it. And it's just it's just disappointing. It's just a just a big flub. And uh, I mean, I think about even the big horror franchises: Friday the Thirteenth, Two, Halloween, Two, even Nightmare Leprechaun on Elm Street, two. two. That's not one of the big ones, please. Two, uh, <laughs> come on, Nightmare on Elm. Say what? Child's Play Two. Hey, I, that one's okay. Child's Play Three is an underrated two. gem. Poltergeist Two's creepy. That guy, that guy's a is a ugh, he's the preacher. That's creepy, man. It's not a great movie, but it's okay. Um, Exorcist Two. That's a bug nuts crazy movie right there. <laughs> okay, but it's The Omen Two. Never seen it. So what? To be, <laughs> and I still haven't seen Ginger Snaps one or two. So I can't compare it to everything. But of the ones I've seen, Hellraiser two is is still pretty good. It's not as good as Hellraiser one, but it's pretty good. Uh, this one though, complete fall off the cliff. No, small, I got a good one for you. Small popcorn burnt all the way. What you got? Gremlins two. <sighs> you know what? I only I've only seen it once, Brian. And I, that's enough. And I never wanted to see it again. So maybe that's up there too. So, I love so Gremlins too. What's wrong with you? What? Oh, I feel. I feel like I know what our December is going to be doing. So <laughs> now, guys, well, one of well, these all right, all right, all right. So snowman Grim- movies. Gremlins two. You need to look at it through the mirror of they kind of twisted Joe Dante's arm to make him do it, and he wanted to do it in such a way that there could never be a Gremlins three. Well, I think he succeeded. <laughs> Mission accomplished. <laughs> that Is that like what Rob Zombie did with his Halloween too? Make sure there can never be another oh, one man. ever. I really so. dug that one. You know what though? Sorry. It, as a movie, it's an interesting experience. As a Halloween movie, it sucks. But anyway, so that's the same way if I feel about part three. It, though, if you look at it through the lenses I put on, it's mm-hmm. actually pretty well done. 
Well, people can listen to that discussion as well in the archives. I think we've done exactly what every sequel podcast does. We've plugged all of our old stuff. So um, It's all we, good stuff. We so. haven't mentioned the American Ninja franchise that Ron and I did, by the way, and that is some Michael Dudikoff heaven, and you need to go visit that, people, if you haven't done it. So uh, some, some good times there. But no, it's been fun talking Scream 2 with you guys. A lot more fun than it was watching it, I promise you that. And so I'm looking forward to getting back and to talk about Scream 3, though, because I don't have good memories of this movie but i've only seen it a like a very few amount of times completely on the way through like on purpose like it'd be on tv and i'd see a piece of it here and there but i only like sat down to watch it i think on purpose maybe like three times so i remember very little about it except what the the big twist is and we'll get to that next time so looking forward to talking to that one with you of course folks if you've heard us talk about for the last hour or so here there's a lot of other podcasts in our archive section all available on our itunes feed and on our website continuousplaguepodcast.com slash movies if you like the show leave us a good review on iTunes. It helps other people find the show. Pass the word along. We appreciate the support. Till next time, for Brian and Ron, I'm Jay. Thanks for listening to Filmstrip. Thank you for listening to Filmstrip. You can find more episodes on our website, continuousplaypodcast.com forward slash movies. Please leave us a positive review on iTunes and link up with us on Facebook. The Filmstrip theme music is produced and performed by Frozen Lake 121.